came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of this, of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come and show to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you recorded for us a heavenly scene, uh, the behind-the-scenes transactions, the, the mind of God at work, the purposes of God at work, things we would never know if you hadn't written this down for us, a glimpse into your mind. And so, Lord, help us to grasp it this morning as it relates to suffering. Give us instruction. Give us wisdom and also hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Job is a gift to us because it deals directly with the struggle of the Christian to understand his or her suffering of many kinds. To give you an overview of Job's sufferings, here's what we know about them from chapters 1 and 2. We know that he was financially ruined because all of his livestock, everything that he owned was either stolen or killed. That was like discovering one day that all of your bank accounts had been cleaned out by identity theft. You know, and you were wealthy and now you're penniless. So financially ruined. All of his servants were also killed. So in a day he lost all. Everyone who helped him make a living, everybody who supported his life. 
Hardest of all, he had ten children. All of them died together when the wind collapsed the house that they were having a birthday party in. All of that happened on one day. That's the kind of trauma that's enough to make some people take their own life. But then he also lost his health. That's the part we read today. He contracted a skin disease that caused very great suffering. He could not get comfortable in any position because he was literally covered head to toe in painful sores. So all Job could do after all of this was sit there and suffer and ponder his ruined life. Days on end. That's by any measure an account of extreme suffering. And the difficulty with it is that Job was a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Those are God's exact words about Job as he's describing him to Satan. Job is the very picture of holiness and faithfulness to God. In fact, God says there's no one else like this guy. He's the best. (laughs) He's the trophy of someone who follows me. And I give you permission to strike him and to ruin him. That's difficult to understand. What are we to make of that? And what are we to make of it when it happens to you as a believer in Christ? When you experience financial hardship, loss of children, severe and lasting health problems, or mistreatment at the hands of others, or any other difficult experience, what are we to do with that? How do we sort that out? Well, let's go to the text and see some principles to help us with that. Here's the first truth, the first principle about Christian suffering is that it comes from the hand of God. Your suffering as a Christian comes from the hand of God. That is a hard thing to hear and many people are repulsed by the thought but it is the clear teaching of this passage. In verse 3, referring to Job's financial ruin and the death of his children, the Lord says to Satan about Job, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to destroy him without reason. The Lord takes personal responsibility for destroying Job. You incited me to do it, is what he said to Satan. Now, Satan is the actual perpetrator of the terrible acts. In chapter 1, verse 12, it's clear the Lord allowed Satan to actually do all that. He says, all he has is in your hand. And then when it was time for the health to go, he, he, this, it was Satan that struck him with loathsome store, sores. So it was really Satan that's doing the evil things to Job, but the Lord gave him permission to do it. And when you give someone permission to do something, you are responsible that it happened. God took responsibility for Job's suffering, and by extension, he takes responsibility for our suffering as believers. It comes from his hand. 
To make that clear, let me point out this in some other passages where God takes responsibility for bad things that happen to to Christians or to his people, Israel. So consider Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. He said, Joseph said to his brothers who did it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's Genesis 50.20. The brothers did the evil and they meant to do evil. And yet Joseph sees behind their evil God meaning something by that evil. God intending that evil to bring about something good, which we find out was saving all of Jacob's family uh, when the famine would come. But God meant it. He meant for his brothers to sell him into slavery. Consider what God said to Habakkuk about what would happen to the people of Judah. He said, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So this is an evil people. This is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And they are coming to Jerusalem to destroy it and take everybody away. And God says, I'm raising him up to do that. And out of that, there were righteous people in Jerusalem, like Daniel, who is also one of the most righteous people we've seen described anywhere in the Bible. And Daniel gets taken captive because God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to bring him back to Babylon. You could say, well, that's not fair to Daniel. But that's what God did. Most importantly, consider what God said about his own beloved son, Jesus. In Isaiah 53.10, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So the most evil thing in history which is the crucifixion of the Son of God, was the will of the Lord. The religious leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, they actually did the evil, but God decreed that it happen for an ultimately good purpose, which was that Jesus would make an offering for our guilt. The act in itself was wicked, and yet God willed, decreed, that it must happen. It was his will to do it that he might save us. So we can summarize God's relationship to Christian suffering in this way. God hates the evil that comes upon us, but he has an ultimately good purpose in it. God himself is not the author of evil, nor does he ever do evil, nor does he approve of evil in itself. However, in a world corrupted by sin, the evil of suffering is a tool in God's hand to bring about ultimate good. So think of evil like a sharp knife. When it's in the hands of humans, it is always wielded to do harm. But when it's in God's hands, it becomes a surgical instrument to do good for his children. And only God has the purity and the wisdom and the goodness to use it for that end. 
But when we're on the operating table, suffering, we don't always see it that way. It just feels like pain without a purpose, but that's because we can't see what the surgery is for, just like Joseph couldn't understand why being sold into slavery had any value at all. But if we could see what God sees, we would see there was ultimately a good purpose in it. So when Christians suffer, it comes to us from the hand of the Lord. It comes from the hand of the divine surgeon. And it is not sin to say that it comes from his hand. Because Job said in verse 10, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? The unfinished sentence implies, Shall we not receive evil from God? Not that he's the author, but that he's using it like that surgical knife. He's ultimately responsible, Job said. And in making that claim, it says Job did not sin with his lips. And in chapter 1, when Job's wealth and his children were taken away, he said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord took away my children. The Lord took away my, my wealth. He did it. And again it said, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is not sin to say that evil and suffering that you experience is received from the hand of God because that is true. The sin is if you curse God for doing it. The sin is if you charge God with wrong because God never does anything wrong. This understanding of God's relationship to our suffering is hard for us to accept if we associate God's love with preventing our suffering. I mean, as parents, we don't want our kids to suffer. We would do everything we can to prevent that. So we naturally think God has to be that way because since he can prevent it, then he should. And so we tend toward one of two responses to try and sort this out. We might say, well, the reason bad things happen to me is because God isn't sovereign. He loves me, but there's nothing he can do about it. But that's to deny something that God actually says about himself, that he is sovereign, and he can do something about it. Or we might say, well, the reason bad things happen to me is because God isn't good. Yes, he could have prevented it, and since he didn't, there's something wrong with him. And then that is where we get all these hard feelings about God that aren't justified because he is good. Neither of those responses is appropriate. The, the humble response is to say, God is both sovereign and good, but I don't know why he's doing this, except he must have some ultimately good purpose in it. That's how we respond to our suffering. And truthfully, we don't always find out what God's purpose is in this life. Job never got an answer to his why questions in the book of Job. <laughs> Not even at the very end. And you won't always get answers. We, we just don't have answers for specifically why does this person have this chronic suffering illness and this person is completely healthy. 
and this person is way more godly than that person. <laughs> you know, we don't have God's mind on these things. We can't say why this one and not another. All we can say is God is good, God is sovereign, and he is up to something that is ultimately good. But that doesn't mean that we know nothing about the why. <laughs> we do know some things about the why of our suffering. And so let's turn to a second principle here, which is about what Christian suffering is not. The suffering of believers is not punishment for our sins. It is not punishment. We know this from looking again at verse 3. The Lord said to Satan about Job, You incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Interesting phrase. Without reason. That doesn't mean God had no ultimate reason. It just means there was nothing going on in Job's life that warranted this suffering. This wasn't the recompense of the wicked. To, to quote Psalm 91.8. Job was a righteous man in God's sight. His suffering was not punishment for sin. And friends, as believers in Christ, your suffering is also not punishment for your sins. So if you lose your job, if you get COVID-19, if you get in a car accident, if you have a chronic illness, it is not the recompense of the wicked because Jesus atoned for all your sins, past, present, and future. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. 1 Peter 3.18. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, meaning he had made full and final payment for the guilt of our sins. He satisfied completely God's righteous judgment for our wrongdoing by his death. And so God's pronouncement over you, believer, is righteous. He counts you, like Job, as blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Why? Because through your faith, he credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. It is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3.9, that is your eternal status before him blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. That is how God sees you and always will. So, friends, chase away the thought in your suffering that this is God's punishment, that you're paying for your sins somehow, that somehow this is a sign that God doesn't love me, that he's trying to get my attention, that there's something that I need to do in order to be right with him. That is not what it is. And some of us might be prone to go there in our minds. Now, you might suffer at times because of unwise choices and sins. That is true. Some of our suffering is of that variety. But that kind of suffering is consequence, not atonement. It's the Father disciplining the one He loves. That's not atonement. That's not paying for your sins. Much of your suffering is simply without reason. 
It is not punishment or the consequence of your sin. It's just that God has some ultimately good purpose for it that's not obvious in the moment. So what might that ultimately good purpose be? Let's talk about that. Here it is. This this is the third principle. The suffering of believers is intended to make us beautiful displays of grace. That's its intent, to make us beautiful displays of grace. I could use other words to say that, which you might be more familiar with. Like, God is conforming us to the image of Christ. Or, God is doing it for our good and for His glory. Those things are true. But I want to use the word beauty, because that isn't what we naturally think of in the ugliness of a hospital bed or an unemployment office or gathered around a casket in a funeral home. We don't think of beauty. Well, that is a word that God uses about us in our suffering and what He's doing. Consider Psalm 149.4. The Lord takes pleasure in His people He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. That's New American Standard. He will beautify us with salvation. Or Isaiah 61, 2 and 3. This is fulfilled in Jesus. It says, He will comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Suffering and affliction are the tools in God's hands to bring beauty out of ashes of this broken world. It's the inner beauty, which is the character of Christ being formed in you. And the beauty of Christ being exposed to the world through your reaction to your suffering. This heart of God, this heart that worships and trusts in God even when the worst things happen. Job's heart was revealed to be like that in his suffering. Satan claimed that Job's devotion to God was only because of his wealth. In chapter 1 he said, "Does does Job fear God for no reason?" Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face? And then he repeated that same accusation again in verse 5. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So in other words, God, Job only worships you because you give him a life of ease. You take away his good life, You take away his comfort, and you'll see who he really worships. He worships his comfort, and he doesn't care about you at all. That accusation may be true for many who profess Christ, but it wasn't true for Job. Even when he lost everything, he did not curse God to his face. He struggled, for sure, In the chapters that followed, he had a lot of questions. He cried out in his pain. He wished he'd never been born. 
He wrestled with the fairness of being destroyed without reason. But he didn't curse God. He didn't charge him with wrong. He held fast his integrity. And every once in a while, like a diamond shining in the dirt, this inner beauty came out. In chapter 13, he said of God, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. In chapter 19, he confesses his resurrection hope. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And he's referring to his loathsome sores. After this, illness destroys me. (laughs) I still will see God from my flesh. He had hope of resurrection. This is what Peter would describe as the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes. This is what God is doing in your suffering, believer. He's bringing beauty out of ashes. He's forming something in you that's more precious than gold. The very character of Christ, the perfect one. And people get to see a glimpse, like these diamonds in the dirt, of something real, something beautiful that's not in these ashes, but is outside of it, and which we will see one day in glory, in its fullness. But right now, where do we get to see it? You get to see it in a hospital bed. You get to see it in the person that asks for prayer. Because they're still, they're still holding on. They're not being fake. They're not saying this feels good. They say, I have hope, so pray for me. That's where you get to see glory and beauty. I saw it in Pastor Dan when I visited him in the hospital. <clears throat> He is somebody that God has literally touched in his bone and his flesh. His vertebrae are fractured, and that's what's giving him pain. And his flesh has cancer. And he said from his pain, I just want the Lord to be glorified in this. That's beauty out of ashes. Still, we might ask the question, but can't God create that same beauty without all the suffering? Can He make us grateful worshipers who trust Him by giving us a lot of good things? Well, yes, God can do anything. And factually, most of the time, He keeps us from much more suffering than we actually experience. If you haven't lost all your children, all your money, all your health, and endured all your friends telling you that it's your fault, which is what Job's counselors did, then you realize you haven't suffered as much as you could. God is merciful, and he keeps us from a lot of things. He also does shower us with grace upon grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1. Forgiveness, God's nearness, the empowering Holy Spirit, resurrection, eternal life. We have lots of blessings from God. 
But suffering seems to be God's most effective tool to shape the beautiful character of Christ in us. For example, other scriptures attest to this. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The affliction was to make us keep his word, which is life. 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul said, We felt that we had received the sentence of death in their ministry. All sorts of terrible, troublesome things happening to them. But he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. (laughs) This suffering, this affliction is weaning us off of all earthly comfort as our hope. And it's placing us on the rock, Christ, where hope really is, where stability is, where surety is. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul speaking my grace, Paul, he said about God, or God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He had an affliction. He asked three times it would be removed. God said no. He says, I want to keep that there, because it's doing something in you. It's making, it's making my power perfect in your weakness. Suffering and affliction cast us onto the Lord and His Word in ways that comfort and ease aren't able to. It's a very effective tool in God's hands to form the beauty of Christ in us. And, and this beauty out of ashes has an immense honor attached to it. The Lord used Job's response in suffering to rebuke Satan. <laughs> to honor Job. Just think again about what he said to Satan in verse 4. God said, have you considered my servant Job? Just think of that. He's talking about you. (laughs) God's having this conversation with Satan about you. (laughs) You don't even know it. Have you considered my servant? A blameless and upright man. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. If I could say it this way, the Lord was proud of Job. And that bestowed great honor on him. He elevated him. Have you considered this guy? Look at this beautiful person, you devil. Here's someone that you will never have as a prize. You will never conquer him. You will never put him to shame. Because he's mine. He's going to come through the fire with faith. The Lord says the same thing to the devil about you, (laughs) suffering believer. Have you considered my servant and then put your name there? They hold fast their integrity, even though you incited me against them to destroy them without reason. Why? Because my my son, they they belong to him now. They're blameless and, and upright They've been taken out of your kingdom and they've been put into my kingdom. They've been honored. So just put your name there. Think about God as being proud of you as you suffer. Even though it's hard, even though you cry out, even though you vent, even though your theology is all mixed up in the moment, He knows those who are His. And He's got you. And He loves you. And He's proud of you. God promises you'll be rewarded also for your faithful suffering. 
Paul says, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Future glory is being produced, stored up for you as you suffer in God's direction on the path of faithfulness. Like Job did. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a crown waiting for you. So what is this glory that's being produced? What is this crown that's waiting for you? I have no idea. But words like glory and crown are pretty promising. (laughs) You know? That must be good. Bottom line, your suffering as a Christian is meant to honor you and reward you as one who, like Jesus, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, walking in his steps. On the other side of your suffering is glory and honor and a crown. And make no mistake, if there was any other way for the Lord to do it in this sin-fallen world, He would have. Lamentations 3.33 says, He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That is, He does not afflict from His heart. He would much rather bless and prosper us and keep us from pain every moment of every day. And in fact, one day that's what He's going to do in the resurrection That's what he loves to do. He's committed to that as a father. But since the world has fallen into corruption, he must bring beauty out of ashes, out of suffering, just as he did with his own son, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who in the garden asked if the cup could be removed from him, but it could not be in order to accomplish the ultimate good of our salvation. Now, we don't know why some people go through more suffering than others. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. He has a secret will. The details, are they belong to Him. But we know the boundaries. Your suffering as a Christian is not punishment for sin. It is God shaping into you, shaping you into the image of Christ who is beautiful. He's bringing beauty out of ashes. That's what he's doing, and there's a reward at the end. Let's close with application. There's something we can do for each other while we suffer. Something we can do for the sufferers. It's this, be a faithful presence for the sufferer. Just be a faithful presence. Even though Job's friends didn't say anything helpful after they started talking, they at least did one thing right in the beginning. Verses 11 to 13, they made an appointment together to come to show sympathy and comfort him. They lifted up their voices and wept. They sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights. No one spoke a word. He saw his suffering was very great. I found that from being in hospitals and funeral homes and places where tragedy has happened, that suffering people are impacted much less by your words than by your presence. You might feel like you have to say something profound in the moment. 
You've got to have like the, the perfect verse for this time. You've got to point people to God's sovereignty. You, know, you have to rack your brain to find out just the right thing to say in the right moment. But I have rarely heard anybody say, that was really helpful. What they remember and appreciate is that you were there. Vanitha Rendell Reisner is a Christian blogger who lost a child, lost her health, and lost her marriage in that order. And in a post titled, What Not to Say to Someone Who is Suffering, she gives her number one piece of advice to those who want to help. And it's this. Sit and listen. Having someone listen as I pour out my heart has helped me more than any words ever have. I just want someone to be there, to weep with me, to say she is sorry things are so hard. Do not expect me to have perfect theology, to let me rant. What amazing gift it is not to feel judged by every word I utter in desperation. That's what it looks like to fill, fulfill Romans 12, 15. Weep with those who weep. We don't want to let each other suffer alone. We want to sit on the ground where they are. Not stand over them. Judgment, all sorts of assumptions about why this is happening. Get on the ground with those people. And of course, pray. That's what we can do to be helpful. So I want to close this message by putting that into practice right away. We are going to try to have Pastor Dan on Zoom now. I'm just going to ask Dan, brief update, how are you, and how can we pray for you, and then we're going to pray. So this is the first time we've tried this, so we're hoping it works. But if it does work, let's give it a try. I want to, I want to bring da Pastor Dan up, and so Dan, if you're there, if you can do it, give us an update. How are you doing? What do you want us to pray for?
<clears throat> Thank you, Dan, for the update. So glad to see you're at home now and not in the hospital bed anymore. Uh, just came home yesterday. Let's let's pray for for Dan, and then we'll close with a song that I think you'll see is very appropriate. Lord, you this stuff that we just heard from your word is true. Um, you have some ultimate good that you're working in Dan uh, and in all of us who suffer. And you're forming the beauty of Christ so that the world, the, the unseen world also, sees the work of grace and how powerful that is, how deep that goes. We do pray for Dan. We ask that you would heal the vertebrae. There's, there's drugs for that. There's the back brace. Would you, would you bring healing to those vertebrae quickly, quicker than, quicker than expected? We ask that the treatments for the cancer are effective. We ask that you put it into remission. We ask that he be able to return to somewhat of a normal life, working and serving and uh, pastoring, just that you do that. We, we pray for Dinah also that you would help her to see as she has to suffer along with Dan and can't do anything about it. I pray, Lord, that she would also feel your comfort and the assurance of your love for her and for him. And uh, it would be a trust that wells up even more. And if she's a sufferer also and your work of grace is going on in her life, and we thank you for this couple that you've given to us to show us the way to suffer well. But Lord, grant them peace that passes understanding and healing. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.